Father, we just thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for your work in us, Lord, that you don't leave us where we're at, but that you take us on to a deeper walk with you. We we know, Lord Jesus, that this life is not a game. It's not something to be played at. We know it's serious, Lord, and uh, we just pray to understand this seriousness today of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul and strength, to walk with each other, Lord, to encourage each other along the way. May bless this time, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, I want to speak a little on discipleship and the cross today. It's just something I've been thinking about. Um, take up your cross and follow me. In Matthew 16, 24, it says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. It's hard sayings. What shall a man give in exchange for his own soul. Because we know the Son of Man is coming, and he shall reward every man according to his works. And sometimes I find myself kind of in a cruise control approach to life. It's I, We practice what we call cruise control approach to obedience. And we know that most cars today have a convenient feature called cruise control. When you're driving on the highway, you can accelerate to your desired speed, push the cruise control button, and take your foot from the accelerator pedal. Some mechanism attached to the engine will then maintain your desired speed, and you can ease back and relax a little. You don't have to watch your speedometer to make sure that you're not speeding. And you no longer have to experience the fatigue that comes with constant foot pressure on the accelerator. It's very convenient and relatively relaxing. And it's a great feature on cars. However, we tend to obey God in the same way. So to continue the analogy... We press the accelerator pedal of obedience until we have brought our behavior up to a certain level or speed. The level of obedience is most often determined by the behavior standard of other Christians around us. We don't want to lag behind them because we want to be as spiritual as they are. At the same time, we're not eager to forge ahead of them because we wouldn't want to be considered some kind of weird radical. 
We want to just comfortably blend in with the level of obedience of those around us. And once we've arrived at this comfortable level of obedience, we push the cruise control button in our hearts. Ease back and relax. Our particular Christian culture then takes over and keeps us going at the accepted level of conduct. We don't have to watch the speed limit signs in God's word, and we certainly don't have to experience the fatigue that comes with seeking to obey him with all our heart, soul, and mind. It's very real. And what I'm trying to get across today is, are we happy where we're at? Are we content with what we're, what our, where our spiritual life is at right now? Are we seeking after Christ? Do we know what discipleship means? What, what uh, growing and moving on in our faith means? Um, <clears throat> I have something I've read before. It's a little humorous, so it's kind of on the same lines as um, discipleship. It's uh, well. Sometimes when you're in a restaurant, they give you these. These you have these cards where you write down um, your comments or you leave your feedback, basically. And these uh, following are actual responses from comment cards given to the staff members at the Bridger Wilderness area in Wyoming. So, and here's what some of them said. This is a wilderness area in Wyoming. If you've ever driven through Wyoming, you know that it's, it's pretty rugged. It's, uh, yeah. One of them, or it says that trails need to be wider so people can walk while holding hands. It says, trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the areas of these pests. Please pave the trails so that they can be snow plowed during the winter. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to the wonderful views without having to hike to them. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. A small deer came into my camp and ate my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? Reflectors need to be placed on trees every 50 feet so people can hike at night with flashlights. Escalators would help on steep uphill sections. A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead and too many rocks in the mountains. So, these uh, comments and complaints indicate that the people who wrote them did not really understand what it means to stay in a wilderness area. They were looking for something convenient and comfortable, but not truly a wilderness experience. And in a similar way, many people today do not understand what it means to be a genuine Christian, a true disciple of Christ. 
There are multitudes that often follow Jesus who say or claim to be a Christian, but they do so on their terms and not his. They do not truly comprehend the biblical definition of discipleship. So a discipleship. And uh, disciple, the term disciple or disciples occurs 269 times in the New Testament, while the term Christian only occurs three times. And we all know that um, Christians were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. But what is a disciple? A disciple is a student. Disciple is one who disciplines himself in the teachings and practices of another. He's a pupil, a learner. And consequently, to learn is to discipline oneself. For example, if you would desire to advance in a certain field of study, what would you do? How would you advance in that field of study? Well, you would start reading books. You would start listening to teachers or experts on the subject. And uh, maybe even go to school, college. And some people go to college for four to eight years, maybe even 16, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. And then you would put into practice what you have learned and discovered. And so it is with disciples of Christ. A disciple follows Christ. When Jesus called his first disciples, he spoke the simple words, follow me. The disciple is a follower, someone who trusts and believes in a teacher and follows that teacher's words and example. It is to be in a relationship, to have an intimate, instructive, and imitative relationship with the teacher. So, and that is a big part of it. That is the part of it, I guess you could say. And I often ask myself, why do I read the Word of God? What do I want to get out of it? Why, why do I read the Word of God? If it's simply to gain knowledge, then I'm not really doing much. I feel it's okay if this, if it to gain knowledge about the word and about you know the life that uh, the people lived back then, what they went through, all of those things. But if that's all there is to it, then. I don't think there's a whole lot going on. It has to be a lot deeper than that, I think. When we read the Word of God, it's there are things in the Word of God that he said it this way, you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you revealed them unto babes. And I think there's something in that. I've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. It's people that come to Christ in simplicity and that read his word and apply it to their lives and to connect it in one way or another 
and follow me. And Jesus said, follow me. Did he say this to us? Is he saying it to us? Is he saying to us, follow me? And uh, a lot of times we kind of go, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. Anywhere but over there. Send me any place but over there. And you can have everything you want but that. And this is kind of our, if this is something that's, that, that is part of our lives and in our hearts, then I'm questioning if we're actually following him. A disciple is one who listens to Jesus. He says here in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. We cannot just say, Lord, Lord, and do not do what he tells us. And do not do what he lays on our hearts to do. Because we're exactly like a person that's building on sand, you could say. It will not last. Disciple is one who learns from Jesus. And we all know listening is not enough. We need to learn from him. And in school, you quickly catch on when students are listening or not. Or when they do their work, you quickly find out that if they actually listen to what you had to say, what you presented to them. And I've noticed that it doesn't work for them to be distracted while you're presenting a lesson. They simply can't handle it. It's simply their mind somehow just focuses on this one thing. And if they ask you, if, and if they ask you, and if you ask them if they listen what you said, because you kind of see that they're not listening, they said, yeah, yes, I, I listen. And you ask them to repeat what you said, and of course, you always repeat the last four words you said. But that's about it. There's nothing, there's really nothing there um, other than that. So distractions are a big part of how we listen. And uh, you could say the method of listening And it's no secret that the enemy's tactics are more and more simply distraction and busyness. In the Screwtape Letters, author C.S. Lewis wrote uh, wrote of a fictional demon, Screwtape, who is training as novice nephew, Wormwood, in the fine art of tempting humans. He said, 
Whatever their bodies do affects their souls. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out, especially the truth. The most effective technique for squeezing good knowledge out of one's mind is to consume its bandwidth with so many distractions that nothing else can get in. Those distractions don't need to be particularly bad or good for that matter, just compelling enough to hold the subject's attention. Distractions. It's amazing how long you can actually go without really praying, without really pouring out your heart to God. It's amazing how long you can actually go without really reading the Bible and having a meaningful time of simply meditating on the Word because of the distractions in our lives. Because it's so convenient and easy not to do it. I found this very clearly in my life that there's not a whole lot of listening going on if there are idols in my life. I know how it can be. I know how it can be. Even sitting here today, the devil is doing, you could say, he wants, the word of God says it this way, he comes immediately. If we don't understand it, he comes immediately and snatches out that word that we've heard. So where, where is it in our lives? How serious are the distractions? When is the last time we've heard Christ speak to us in a clear way? Where he laid something on our hearts that he wanted us to do. I spoke to someone the other day, shared this testimony of someone that was going through something, had a sick child, and He came in prayer and he felt the Lord telling him very clearly, I'm not hearing you because how can you pray if you have this idling in your life? And he was talking about sports. This thing was, it was a big thing in his life. And he said, he felt basically God telling him, How do you think your prayers are supposed to be heard if just um, tomorrow you'll be back into this? You cannot serve God and mammon. That's not how it works. Hindrances to prayer, hindrances to being heard. And... I also remember this, uh, I think Brother John shared it, that used to come together to pray just as couples or as uh, anyone that wanted to. And I remember John saying this uh, one time. 
and it made it made a lot of sense to me. He said, "When you come, be ready to pray. Don't come and uh, in in repentance mode or having things in your life that you need to repent of, and uh, and just." May need to make them right. And I know it's okay to do that, but I know what he was saying. He was saying, you're coming there ready to pray. You're coming there with your life um, basically in order so that you can pray, so that there are no, there are no idols in your life or there's no, there's no hypocritical... Um, this, this hypocritical thing in your life. And it hit me because that's, that's very true. When we're called upon to pray, where does our mind go to? I often look at that in my life. When I'm called upon, when, when you're in a time of need, when there's something that's going on, where does your mind go to? Mind automatically always goes to Okay, what about this in my life? What about that in my life? What about... And I know it's an attack of the enemy. You could say that it is an attack of the enemy, but it's still real. It's still true because it, it hinders you. And that's why I'm saying it's, we're playing games a lot of times. Anyway, I do. In Luke 14, 25 and 26, he says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And these are very hard words. And it's basically Jesus weeding out the joyriders, you could say. Jesus was not talking to those who opposed him or to those who were uninterested in his life and message. No, these were people who were traveling with Jesus. They were positive in their attitude toward Jesus. They were interested in what he had to say. They apparently mistook this positive attitude and interest in Jesus for true discipleship. As many people do today, they considered themselves to be followers of Jesus, but in reality, they were only casual followers and not committed followers. They were willing and even anxious to follow Jesus, providing the cost was not too high or the demands too great. They were like many people today who do Christian things, like go to church, pray, sing Christian songs, but are not really committed to Jesus. Simply doing enough to appease the conscience or appease your parents or someone else. In a sense, they were along for the ride, but were unwilling to give up everything in their lives that conflicted with following Jesus in a committed way. They were like many today who look to Jesus to solve all their money problems, their relationship problems, their health problems, etc., but who quickly follow into the disillusionment and are unwilling to obey Jesus completely when following Jesus doesn't solve these problems, or following Jesus requires real sacrifices in their lives. 
is kind of just skimming the cream off the top type of living. It's simply existing and not making much of a difference. Fulfilling the duties that we're called to do, but never going above and beyond that. With being involved in people's lives and contributing something meaningful, something real. It really it challenges me because I know I'm there a lot. Of, uh, a lot. You do your duties. You, you take care of your children. Make sure they're clothed and they're fed. You speak to them. I mean, you, well, you interact with them. You converse with them. But we don't really do the hard things. You avoid the hard things. We avoid actually sitting down and speaking into their lives. I remember this one time, <clears throat> I kind of excused myself with Brother Richard, you know. I told him, uh, you know what? I mean, we have messages every Sunday. Why, why, how isn't that good enough? It was kind of good enough for me, you know. Why do, why do people need, I mean, don't they hear the word of God? And he kind of said, that's, that's, that's the easy thing. It's not really, I mean, it is giving of yourself, but it's not really coming down on someone's level and interacting with them and sharing with them and just probing into their life in a meaningful way. And I knew what he meant. I knew what he meant. Because it's difficult. It's not easy to sit down and to open up and share with someone and to make yourself vulnerable. And what you're going through and praying with each other, that's actually, I think, a lot harder than sharing a message. He goes on and he says, John 6, Um, going along the theme of just following Christ for the good things. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat, for that meat which endured unto it everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him had God the Father sealed. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Can you imagine hearing those words? I mean, to us, they even sound a little okay. How, why would you say something like that? But he knew why he said it. 
These were people that simply, he had no time for half-heartedness. He had no time for people that were just along for the ride. He had no time for people that just wanted to have their plates full of food. And can you imagine if Jesus would have sent these people out to preach? Do you see these people making an impact for this kingdom? He was simply saying, I believe. Get to know me in a serious way. I, I think so anyway. Jesus offers us heavenly bread for eternal life, but we must eat it. Faith in Jesus is not compared with tasting or admiring, but with eating. Jesus says that we must have him within us and we must partake of him. Seeing a loaf of bread on a plate will not satisfy our hunger. Knowing the ingredients in the bread will not satisfy our hunger. Taking pictures of the bread will not satisfy our hunger. Telling other people about the bread will not satisfy our hunger. Selling the bread will not satisfy our hunger. Playing catch with the bread will not satisfy our hunger. We know what satisfies our hunger. We have to eat the bread. That's the only way. So how would you characterize, describe your relationship with God? Is he a concept that we have in our heads? Do we have a, no a lot of knowledge about him? Is God at work in our lives? Do we think God is like a vending machine for all our wants? Is God someone that you still have to come to grips with? Someone who says that you are fine the way you are? Or is he someone who says that if you want to think of yourself as a Christian and disciple and all that it entails, it demands sacrifice and self-denial in the quest to know more of him? It is a constant temptation that Satan puts before us to get us to take back what it was that we had given up and reclaim what we have renounced and forsaken. I'll read that again. It is a constant temptation that Satan puts before us to get us to take back what it was that we have given up and to reclaim what we have renounced and forsaken. It is especially tempting to compromise our commitment when we feel the cost becomes too high. Discipleship is on God's terms, just as coming to him is on his terms. We don't make the terms. And one of the terms is gaining by losing. Looks like a foreign concept, but that's what it is. It's gaining by losing. It's self-denial. A person who is not willing to deny himself cannot claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
Deny means to completely surrender, to let go, to put everything under the security scanner in our lives. And again, with the airport analogy, when you go to the airport, you have to go through security. And you, you basically remove everything um, except your clothes. You take off your, your hat, your glasses, your watch, your cell phone, your belt, your shoes. You put your backpack in the, in the bin and they put it through. They send it through your wallet. And those things all represent something. They represent our time, our money. They represent our hobbies. Because a lot of people they travel with whatever. Their tennis rackets and their golf clubs and their guns and their fishing rods and whatever. All of those things. But the thing is, they don't let anything through. It all goes through a scanner. It just goes right through there. And you have to go and you have to stand in the, uh, the x-ray machine and they scan you as well, top to bottom, to see if you're not hiding anything. And that's kind of how it is when you come to Christ. If anything is deemed by security to be a threat to the mission of the flight, you must be willing to either stay behind or sacrifice the item. So we can choose. I could have chosen, well, I don't want to go through this, so I'll just stay home. I mean, I want to put this stuff through um, the scanner here. But if you want to go on this mission, on this flight, you have to do it. And in the same way, that's what Christ is calling us to do. And initially, it seems like it's easy. I mean, it was for me when I was converted. God took away those, those uh, desires that I had for whatever it was, those, um, those things that took up my life. But you can easily start to reclaim them, to excuse them to just, um, what's the word, justify them again. So we have to put everything under that scanner, even today. It has to go under there. And we have to ask the Lord, Lord, how do you see this? What does it look like to you in my life? And this is, I think, a daily thing. It's not just a one-time thing. It has to, we have to be put continuously through that scanner. Lord, what do you see? How, how do you view this in my life? He has to utterly disown himself, to refuse to acknowledge the self of the old man. The self to which Jesus refers is not one's own personal identity as a distinct individual. The self to which Jesus is speaking is rather the natural, sinful, rebellious, unredeemed self that is at the center of every fallen person and that can even reclaim control over a Christian. 
this the fleshly body. So dying to self. A few more things on dying to self. Dying to self is when your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are ignored, your advice disregarded, your opinion ridiculed. You refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are ignored, your advice disregarded and your opinion ridiculed, that's when it comes out that we're truly okay. That's when we see that self coming forth. Dying to self is when you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance. When you stand face to face with folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus did. Dying to self is when you're content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption by the will of God. That's, that's a difficult one. Any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any solitude. Will God call us to that or does he call us to that? Dying to self is when you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works or itch after commendation. When you can truly love to be unknown and seek to see Christ glorified. Dying to self is when you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy, nor question God while your own needs are far greater and you are in more desperate circumstances. Dying to self is when you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart. Dying to self is when you're forgotten, neglected, or purposefully set at nothing, and you don't, and you don't sting or hurt with the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ. These are high callings. I'm not saying I'm there yet. What is truly dying... And to self, because you see these things in Christ. <coughs> you see all of these things in Christ. Salvation is offered to us as a free gift of God. Yet discipleship has a great cost. And there's another analogy. Uh, suppose you have a desire to climb Mount Everest. Suppose a wealthy businessman heard of your desire and offered to pay for the entire expedition. It costs about $70,000 to do it. He would buy all the expensive clothing and gear. He would pay for your transportation, the guides, and the training. It's totally free for you in terms of financial cost. But if you accept his free offer, you have just committed yourself to months of difficult training and difficult effort. And it could even cost you your very life. Because many good climbers die trying to climb Mount Everest. It is free and yet very costly. I kind of say it this way. Salvation will cost you nothing, but it will cost you everything. Taking up the cross. 
Taking up the cross is not necessarily the common trials and hardships that all persons experience sometimes in life. We, we a lot of times hear this thing about taking up the cross that it's just when we face a certain situation that's hard, it's just a cross that I need to bear. It's not a domineering boss or problems in the workplace or uh, things like that, a physical handicap or suffering from a disease. And it's not just, well, that's my cross that I have to bear. Taking up the cross, I think, as Jesus spoke it, is we count the cost and then we pick up that cross. And it means that we are willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. Any price. It is the willingness to endure shame, embarrassment, reproach, rejection, persecution, anything for his sake. And we know Christ went through it, and we know he said you shouldn't be surprised if you go through it as well. And I have a story here I'd like to read. Um, it's actually from the movie uh, Insanity of God. And it's it just always stuck with me when we speak of this. It says, Dimitri was a Russian pastor leading a house church. As townspeople heard of the powerful manifestations of God taking place among the worshippers, more and more crowded into Dimitri's home to hear about Jesus. One night, more than 150 people gathered. The authorities couldn't let this continue, so they sent Dimitri a thousand kilometers away from his family and locked him in prison. He was the only believer among 1,500 hardened criminals. His captors tortured him to force him to renounce his faith, but Dimitri held firm. For 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed. As was his custom, he would face the east, raise his arms in praise to God, and then he would sing a heart song to Jesus. The other prisoners would laugh, curse, and jeer. They'd bang metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. They threw food and sometimes human ways to try to shut him up and extinguish the only true light shining in that dark place every morning at dawn. One day, Dimitri found a full sheet of paper and a pencil in the prison yard. I rushed back to my jail cell and I wrote every scripture reference, every Bible verse, every story and every song I could recall. He posted it on a damp pipe in his cell as an offering to the Lord. His jailer saw it, beat and punished him and threatened him with execution. As jailers dragged him from his cell down the corridor, the strangest thing happened. This is after 17 years. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out into the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east and they began to sing the song that they had heard Dimitri sing to Jesus every morning for all those years. Shocked, his jailers released their hold and backed away from him. Who are you, one demanded. Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall and as proud as he could. I am a son 
of the living God, and Jesus is his name. The guards returned him to his cell, and shortly afterward he was released and returned to his family. Every morning for 17 years, Dimitri sang his song. In the face of intense opposition and persecution, he offered praise to God. In the darkest and most hopeless of circumstances, he clung to the Lord Jesus and proclaimed his faith. By all outward appearances, Dimitri's prison ministry, ministry was fruitless. He was one man surrounded by evil, clinging to a God who seemed to have forgotten him. But because Dimitri lived to tell his story, we know better. Through his testimony, God cracks the curtain on the mystery of stubborn faith in the face of suffering. Most of us will never suffer for our faith as Dimitri has. But are we willing to? And I look at this man a lot of times and I wonder what was his life like before that. What was his life like before that? Did he get up every morning before that as well and sing this song? And I know it must not have been easy to sit there for 17 years in prison cell and having whatever, being cursed at and uh, abused all of these different things. And then leaving that, that place with 17 years of your life gone and not having any bitterness or resentment. He truly, I think, knows what it, what it means to be a disciple. So... Philippians 3, 7 to 11, it says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There are quite the verses, if that is actually something that we read and say, Lord, I, I want, I desire that. A.W. Tozer, I'll close with that. I've read this before too, but I felt he has a pretty good grip on it. He addressed this decades ago. He says, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It is like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial, and the difference is fundamental. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross amuses. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. 
The old cross brought tears and blood. The new cross brings laughter. Dozer continues, any objection to the carrying on of our present gold calf, lukewarm Christianity has met with the triumphant reply, what we are winning them. And winning them to what? To true discipleship, to cross-carrying, to self-denial, to separation from the world, to crucifixion of the flesh, to holy living, to nobility of character, to despising of the world's treasures, to hard self-discipline, to love for God, to total commitment to Christ. This pleasant new cross view often leaves people confused and deceived because they believe in a self-promoting, self-seeking Christianity that bears no resemblance to Jesus' sobering call to full surrender, dying to self. For this reason, it has been said that one of the greatest mission fields in the world today <coughs> is the church as a whole in America. In our zeal to lead people to Christ, many paint a false picture of discipleship or water it down altogether. Jesus didn't say, follow me and you won't have to change anything. He said, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus wants us to understand what's involved when we follow him. There is a cost. The cross cost him, and it will cost us. If current statistics hold true, many will continue to embrace a glamorized Christianity and be led astray. Life is a battleground, not a playground. But I want to add this. I don't believe Christ enjoys seeing us suffer. He is not out to make our lives as difficult and miserable as possible. He doesn't enjoy watching his saints suffer and die. But if we pray that he will continue his work in us, then he will do that. And sometimes it takes more than we realize to accomplish that to accomplish that picture of Christ, to accomplish that, um, you could say, sweet-smelling savor that people, that people sense and smell. He wants our full surrender and complete dependence on him. So how much are we willing to give? How much are we willing to give? And the things that go through the scanner, you could say, when Jesus points it out in our life, do we make excuses for it? Or do we say, yes, Lord, I choose to let it go for your sake. <clears throat> so, it's not easy, but nobody said that it would be. So God bless you. Thank you for listening.